We've shown that video in the past. If you have been here, we've probably shown that video more than any other video. We repeated it more than any other video simply because the message is so good. It's so true. And it is very uh, applicable to what I'm going to talk about this morning. But before I do that, just a, a, a few things that are coming up. Um, we've got some birthdays. I just wanted to, uh, my feed was kind of full of birthdays this morning, but, uh, Scott had a birthday last week. Uh, he's getting pretty old. He's here. So, uh, pat him on the back, tell him it's good to see him. We hope he keeps moving around as well as he is. So, um, but no, we, we love Scott. He's, uh, such a big part of us and what we do here and, uh, in, in our lives. Uh, also Christie's, our children's director's birthday is tomorrow. Uh, she's the opposite spectrum. Um, she, you know, I, I think I was, uh, driving and doing all of the things when she was born. Uh, so she has lots of life left in her and, uh, but we're glad to have them here in their service and what they do. Also today is my mom's birthday. And, uh, so we're going to be celebrating with her later today. Just, just to give you an update, I've had a lot of questions this morning, how mom's doing. Many of you know her, she, they were a part of journey for, you know, seven years that we got started with drive down from Knoxville. And then just in the last year or so things got really difficult for them uh and you know, it was just harder to make that drive so so they're not here every week anymore uh but mom came down with some acute pancreatitis she's in the hospital for about a week and i appreciate all the prayers and all the questions and comments uh many of you have asked well how is she doing uh she's really not doing any better uh, if anything she's doing a little worse she uh she's not able to eat if you're aware of pancreatitis at all when you eat it makes it worse uh, just the way the body functions. And so um, after a few weeks of not eating, then you begin to be affected by the lack of nourishment. And that's kind of where she is. So we're just continuing to pray for healing for her and we appreciate those prayers. Uh, she still, her spirits are up. Um, but if you talk to her, you, you'll definitely recognize that she is, is not herself. So uh, we'll be hoping that sometime in the next uh, few days or next few weeks, she'll see, we'll see some improvement. Probably going to be headed back to the hospital this week but we'll just kind of wait and see. So your prayers are appreciated there. Uh, we also, just as Richard mentioned earlier, we need to, to recognize when travesty and tragedy happens around the, the globe. And uh, that certainly happened yesterday in Nepal. If you're not aware of Nepal, uh, really what happens there, we, we've had the opportunity to work with 1040 Connections. Stacy and Kim Hill are, are very uh, involved in that part of the world in missions and in just trying to reach that group. And the reason is, one of the most, uh, one of the largest unreached groups with the gospel in the world, one of the poorest. While there are certainly some non-poor areas of Nepal, by and large, it is vastly a country in poverty. So it's a country in poverty, without basic infrastructure, without um, financial uh, means to help through a tragedy like this. I think this morning, right now, the count is right at 2,000 people that died from the earthquake continuing to have massive aftershocks that are just as bad as, as many earthquakes in other parts of the world. And uh, so we need to continue to pray for them, look for opportunities to support that financially. Uh, we're not going to jump on a plane and try to get over there because that's rarely helpful. Um, but it is an opportunity for us to use what we do have, which is our finances to help. And uh, as, a, as a people of God, to pray for them. So why don't we just do that right now? Let's pray and, and then we'll continue. Father... Uh, God, I thank you that we are, are here in such a comfortable place. Uh, we have comfortable chairs. We have air conditioning. We have the sun shining. We have an outlook of many things we can go out and do today. But yet, in many parts of the world, that is not their experience. And instead, today is a day of pain, of heartache, of loss, of, uh, of hopelessness. And so, God, we, we want to thank you for all you have given us. But we want to ask you to be at work in the lives of, of these families, of these individuals, of this nation that is struggling so much today. I pray that you would prompt us with the sermon on ways that we can be involved as a solution. And God, I pray that we would be ever diligent, not just in desiring to help physical needs, but to continue to take the gospel to places that don't have it. Uh, Lord, I pray that your glory would be spread around the globe and that we would see you clearly in our lives today. Help us to share that with those that are suffering. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I wanted to show the video today because what I want to talk about is what does it look like for us to pursue God in an undignified way? 
So we've been talking about being undignified now for several weeks, and, and it really is a topic that kind of goes against our cultural conditioning. In our cultural conditioning, we are trained to value certain things, and we are trained to give honor and respect to certain people or certain experiences, and we call that dignity. And the, the crazy thing is, is we rarely talk about dignity until you get really to the end of life. And we talk about ending your life with dignity, which let's be honest, many times uh, ending your life with dignity, many of the commercials and the marketing tools that are being used to talk about this really just means so you quietly go into the distance without interrupting the lives of others. When the truth is when we love someone, there's no dignity in the end of life. We love them till the end and we suffer with them as they, they suffer to the end. And so we have this weird understanding of what dignity is in the world. Now, I don't in any way want to diminish that we as a people of God need to be able to be a people of honor and respect. In no way do I want to diminish that that is what God wants us to be. However, I will tell you that if you pursue God and the ways in which he says you will be honored and respected, you have to be prepared that the world will not see that and value that. And so we are called to live in the world's terms an undignified life. And so what we've tried to to show you over the last few weeks is that not only has God called us to this life of uh, without dignity as the world sees it, but what he has demonstrated through his own interaction with us is that he loves us with an undignified love as well. And Stacy did a great job sharing that last week with the prodigal. How he came to us when he didn't have to. How we had no choice and no opportunity to come back. And yet he brought us to himself. And so God has pursued us with that undignified love. But where the rubber meets the road for us is how do we kind of return the favor, you know? And and, and this is going to be a challenge. I'm going to be straight up with you that this is going to be a challenge this morning for me to pull off. Uh, what I want to share with you, I hope I get across, but we're going to be talking a lot about sin today, and that's always a feel-good topic, right? Makes everybody go, yeah, hey, wait, before you get started, I've got a few friends I want to call and have them come down before you get started. You know, it's not one of those kinds of sermons. And the reason that we try not to talk about sin too much, and the reason that sin really isn't discussed a lot in churches anymore, is because it has so been abused And some of you I recognize will come from a background that when sin was brought up, its purpose was not to help liberate you. Its purpose was to control you or it was to have power over you based on placing some level of guilt on your lives that the speaker perhaps indicated he didn't or she didn't have. That's one of the reasons that we try to be very transparent up here about the fact that we all struggle with sin. I struggle with sin on a daily basis, and it is not a, the, the purpose is not to have power or control, because how can I control you while controlling myself at the same time? We're all in the same boat, yet this is an incredibly important topic for us to understand what does it look like to pursue God. And so as we get started, one of the things I want you to think about is what is so valuable that we don't care what others think at all as we pursue it. Now, there are lots of things we can fill in the blank with, but I just for you, what are the things that you will pursue? And you may look foolish pursuing them, but you just don't care. I mean, you just don't care. For some of us, it was, you know, getting a date, right? We were pursuing somebody and we were willing to make fools of ourselves because we really wanted to go out with them, right? I mean, I didn't do that. No, I did. We did. I did crazy, crazy, stupid things just like everybody else did. I remember before I ever even talked to Deidre about having a date, you know, I, I was really nervous because I really liked Deidre before uh, we started dating. We both worked together. I like to tell people I was her boss. She remembers that story a little differently. But uh, I'm, I'm telling the story, so, you know, I get to say what I want. But uh, we were both working at a, a camp, and I was the waterfront director. She was a lifeguard, but yet I really didn't have a clue what I was doing, so we kind of shared responsibilities. And, uh, and so we worked together for a summer before I ever asked her out. And one of the reasons was because one of the camp rules was you can't date other staff members, which was a problem for people who were truly staff members. Cause we were there all summer long. It was nine weeks of this. 
So at the end of the last week, I finally had the courage up to ask her out. And so we were sitting around and playing, uh, I don't remember, we were playing cards, poker or something, you know, good Christian activity compared, but some would consider. And so we were doing, it was like three in the morning because I, you know, I think she had a little something for me too. Now she may not admit that, but I'm pretty sure it was true. So we played these silly games till about three. Is she in here by the way, or is she serving in kids? I just want to know what I'm going to be answering to when I leave today. She's in kids. Excellent. Okay. I'm going to continue with my story then. So we play cards literally till about three in the morning before we ever get to the point of, you know, I just can't do, we can't, we can't do this anymore. We got to go to bed. Kids will be up in like three hours. We got to go to bed. And so we did. And right as she was walking off, I was like, Hey, you want to go do something? Went cancel or, you know, and, and man, I felt so silly and so foolish because, you know, we had to finish the week and we had to work together. What if she said, no, there are things that we're willing to look foolish for, right? We're willing to look crazy for. Now we each have different things. Many times they really are relationships in which we're, we're willing to be foolish because somewhere deep down in us, we recognize that the most valuable thing in life are relationships, not the things. That's one of the reasons that at the end of life, the ability to be around those that you love and you care about is a real gift for those that are passing from this life to the next because those relationships become just vital for you. You just, you don't care about what color your house is. You just don't care about what, you know, what kind of restaurants you get to go eat at. You just don't care about those things the older you get because you realize relationships are so valuable. But there may be other things that you're willing to look foolish over. Maybe there was a life goal you had and and maybe people your age, right? Your age, whatever that means, don't go after those things. So I want to go skydiving. Yeah, but you're 85 years old. When you pull the ripcord, every bone in your body's going to break. You know, you sure you want to do that? So, you know, I don't know that that would happen. I'm not an expert on skydiving. But whatever it is, and you say, I don't care. I'm going to do it. I don't care what other people think. What is that thing for you that you're willing to pursue no matter what? And you really could care less what other people think. So as we start this discussion, we cannot start with our own experience. We have to start by the originator of all things, and that is God. And so as we begin to think about what does it mean to pursue someone or something, I don't want to rehash what Stacy said last week, but the truth is, is that God pursues us with an undignified love. He had an undignified death for us. And even before his death, he led an undignified life. Scott and I were talking this week just about kind of the cultural expectations we put on God and Jesus. And we were saying, you know, most people would not be okay with the fact that Jesus was a homeless bum for his entire ministry. Most people won't be comfortable with that. But go through and read about the ministry of Jesus. He did not have a home. He did not carry things with him. And in fact, when he began to send the disciples out, he said to them, hey, I'm going to do the same thing. Don't take anything with you. You will exist off of the generosity of other people. Now that makes some of us uncomfortable because we really don't want to see Jesus in those terms. But that's the way he lived. Now, before some of you go to the extreme, because that's how we often go, the belief that that means that you need to sell your house and you need to wander around living off the generosity of others. Let me tell you something. You need to have a clear word from God if that is your call, because that is not the experience of all that follow Jesus from that point forward. It is not a prescription for how we were to live, but he demonstrated he was willing to pursue us without the dignity that the world recognizes. So as we begin to think about how do we pursue God, we first have to look at how he has pursued us. And one of the things that we have to understand the difference is how do we pursue God with our lives versus how should we pursue God? This is going to be crucial for us moving forward. There's a way we pursue God And some of us pursue God with going to church and doing religious things and 
marking notches on our belts when we do good stuff in the world. And so we pursue God in that way. But I want us to really wrestle with how should we pursue God? And in some cases in my own life, I'm, I'm squarely in pursuing in the way I should. And other times I'm squarely pursuing him in the way I want to, but not necessarily is it a legitimate way to pursue God. I've just worked myself up to say what I'm doing is a good thing. So there is a difference in how we do it and how we should do it in the culture in which we live. Now, the reason I talk so much about culture is not because we need to war with the culture. The culture is what it is. It will be what it's going to be until Jesus returns and kind of ends all this. There's nothing we can do about it. The fact that we're going to try to war against it and change it and make it a Christian culture not going to happen. Everything in scripture says it's not going to happen. For us to go to war with culture is a waste of energy. However, we do need to understand its impact on us so that we can walk through life, not letting it control us. But we must know we will never control it. There'll never be a good enough speaker, a good enough Christian musician. There will never be a good enough conference that draws people to it. Or a relevant enough church that changes the culture of the world. Because the culture is dominated by an enemy. And you and I do not have the power to overcome it. The one who does have the power to overcome it has said he will withhold that power until Jesus returns. We're not going to fight against culture and change it. But we can understand the influence it has on our lives. And us living in what we have Many of us grown up believing that this was a Christian nation are beginning to recognize, ho, 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 maybe not after all. And that culture, we need to be very clear about what is following God and what is not following God. The truth is for the vast majority of self-identifying Christians, they do not ever read scripture. These are just surveys polls taken amongst people who identify as christians the vast majority will never open their bible increasingly they will not be a part of a faith community they're going to find other places at starbucks and the park and six flags to experience god but not a faith community increasingly those that identify as christians are not going to adhere to the tenets of our faith if they are at all rejected by the people around them And so they only adhere to the popular ones, which often falls to this love God, love people without a true understanding of what does it really mean to love God and love people. Because we typically, we, what self-identifying Christians who have no real devotion to God, what the way they describe or define loving God and loving people is simply, I'm just never going to hurt your feelings because you don't hurt the feelings of people you love. Yet if you've ever been in a meaningful relationship you know that's not true. There are times we hurt each other's feelings, but we never do it because we want to hurt. There are times I hurt Deidre's feelings. There are times she hurts my feelings. But yet it is better to have an honest discussion about what is good and right than it is about pretending that what is less than is actually good and right. So there's lots of things that we have to address here. It's increasingly part of this self-identifying group of Christians that really we don't have any true tenets of faith that we must follow. We just kind of wipe them away and do our thing. Additionally, we have less and less people confessing to be Christians that spend any real time in prayer. So why do I tell you these things? To make us feel bad? To make us feel good? I mean, how, why share these things? Other than to say that the trend is that the person saying they pursue God really have no indication in their life that they're doing so. Other than they may attend a church service every now and again. And what we know to be true is that attending a church service, if that is the pinnacle of your religious experience, is very wanting. And then it depends on which church service did I attend. We have to understand the difference between how we pursue God and how God says we should pursue him. So what does it really look like to pursue God? I want to tell you the story about David. Some of you know this story. David, you know, is a somewhat controversial character in scripture. If you're 
If you've got your phone, you can follow on version, or you can turn in your, your Bibles to 2 Samuel. I'll give you a couple of minutes because I know you don't turn to 2 Samuel very often. You can look it up in the index if you need to. If you're on version, it's really easy. It's S-A, you know, that's Samuel. So one S-A, right? Or actually it's 2 Samuel. So two S-A. 2 Samuel chapter 6. And this is the story about the Ark of the Covenant. Now, some of us grew up with a great deal of knowledge about the Ark of the Covenant, right? Indiana Jones, man, he taught us the Bible. We know what happens when you open the ark, you melt, you know, it's, it's, you just, you close your eyes. If the ark ever comes near you and it's opened, close your eyes or you'll melt. But if you, if, if you can turn and get video of other people melting and it will be viral in no time. So we can thank Indiana Jones for many of our understanding of what the ark of the covenant is, right? For those of you that didn't have the joy of growing up in the historical area of Indiana Jones, and I'm not talking about the latest one, that doesn't count, who who did not grow up in the historical area of Indiana Jones, the Ark of the Covenant was a big gold box that was built to hold the Ten Commandments. And they would take it and it demonstrated the presence of God wherever they would go. So as they were wandering the desert and as they were trying to have a home, they created this ark and this would carry the presence of God and they would pitch a tent and this would be what was called the tabernacle, not the temple. The tabernacle was a tent where it was like where church was. But because they wandered around, they had to keep picking up the stakes and moving it and dropping it down. And so they would move this ark from place to place. This continued even once they moved into the promised land and they began to put down stakes and they had a capital and they had a king and all of this began to work. The ark of the covenant was meant to demonstrate the presence of God and wherever it was, those people would be blessed. So right now we're in the midst for David of a war with the Philistines. And he has had he has now won some of these battles. He has completely destroyed some of their idols and he knows they're coming for him. And so he wants to bring the ark of the covenant to the capital so that they will be blessed and they can hold off their enemies. Now along the way, this is where we hear the story that a lot of us really can't have a hard time understanding. But in this story, one of the priests are walking beside the ark. And one of the rules was you cannot touch this box because it is the presence of God. If you touch it, it will be defiled. And anyone who touches it will immediately die. There was only one type of priest that could touch this box. Anybody else was unclean and would die. And so as they're carrying this ark, it begins to fall. This priest reaches up to hold it. And immediately dies. Well, David goes into a fit. He doesn't bring the ark to the capital. Instead, he sends it somewhere else. And he says, I'm mad at God. I can't believe he was trying to help here. And he's struck him down. I don't want it. And in David's mind, now the ark is defiled. It's going to have lost all his juju. And so I don't need it in the capital anymore. And so he sends it off. This is where we pick up 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 12. He sends it just, well, in the preceding verses, he sends it to a place called Obed-Edom. And he hears that as long as it's been there, they have just been blessed. So apparently the juju is still there. Now, King David was told the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring the ark of God from the house of of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who were carrying the ark had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. I mean, he's really excited. He's doing everything right now. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. And while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and sounds of trumpets, as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window, and when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. Now, what we read in through this is that David's not just dancing, David's like a lunatic. 
He's going berserk. He's so excited. He's worshiping. He is just rejoicing. He is glorifying God. And he's going nuts. And he has just this one garment on that when he danced crazy ways, like, you know, some of us do if we do ever dance, he began to show some stuff he ought not be showing. I mean, he's getting into it. We could look at David and say, man, this guy's overwhelmed. A king whose honor is one of the most important things to uphold, being undignified before the Lord. Now, interesting part of this story is that the daughter of Saul, Saul and David's family is not really best of friends, right? Remember the story of Saul and David? David took over after Saul, after God put Saul out, traced David, hunted David. And it says that she despised him in her heart. Verse 17 says, They brought the ark of the Lord, set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. And after he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake, and dates, and a cake of raisins to each person and the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. So, verse 20, when David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said... How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls, of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would. In other words, I reject your worship. It was bad. It was wrong. Shouldn't be doing it this way. Now, as we go through this this morning, I want you to understand that if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to experience this. It is not if, it's when. It is inevitable. Because the culture, the world, does not validate the worship of God. But let's continue on how we pursue. Let's look and see what happens. David said to Michal... It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father, anyone from his house, when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. It will become even more undignified than this. That's a good choice of words. (laughs) Even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children till the day of her death. Now, why is that verse even in there? What we find throughout the Old Testament is God often demonstrated his work through the childbearing of parents. And it was understood to be a curse to be barren. Is that the case today? not really the case today. It was understood and it is in here because it demonstrated she was against the Lord and therefore the Lord did not bless her. Now, what can we take from this? That his worship was undignified and he didn't care. That other people judged him because his worship was undignified and he didn't care. And ultimately, what is most important is what does God receive as worship, not what we choose to give as worship. Now, this is a crucial difference. What does God receive versus what do we give? When I was a kid, we would buy gifts for family. And so whenever any any event that would come up, Easter, you know, Valentine's Day, way too many for a kid to keep up with, right? We would buy gifts for each other and our family. It was just part of the way we demonstrated love for each other. And it was one of the ways that my parents wanted us to learn how to handle money is a portion of it was to give both to the church and a portion to give to others. And so they wanted us to do that. Well, I was one of those that skirted under the line of the law. You know what I'm saying? You know, my sister, she is a lot better person than I am. 
And she would get these elaborate gifts and she would make these elaborate things and she would present them and the, you know, the clouds would part and the sun would come up and the fa- all the faces of everyone around would just, ah, you know, it was just amazing. She would do this. And I'd plop my bag of jelly beans out for Easter, you know. I was like, that's the last 50 cents I had because I spent all the rest on me. Just because we choose to give something doesn't mean it will be received in the way that we intend. What we have to do when we understand, well, how do we pursue God is we have to understand God sets the rules for this. God says what is acceptable to him, not what I say is acceptable, which is one of the biggest problems in the church today. We dictate to God what he will accept rather than humbling ourselves with what he said he will accept. So if we're going to pursue God, we have to understand that we give him what he has requested and what he is due. Before understanding how we should pursue God, we have to discover a bigger question. Why? Why should we pursue God? There's a lot of people that the answer is very clear right here. You shouldn't pursue God. He's not worthy to be pursued. There's no value in it. That's old stuff. Even some preachers that have have pastored huge churches are now touring the country saying the teachings of God in the Bible are now irrelevant to us in our current age. These articles that come out, why people are leaving the church, I can't stand those articles. If you want to repost those, that's fine. We can differ on this. I can't stand why Christians are really leaving the church. They are the worst, most selfish, most hypocritical um, articles you will ever read. Well, because they just don't meet me where I am. They don't reach out to other people and they don't meet me where I am. Translation, I was not the center of attention. That's that's hypocrisy. They do not uh, even try to be relevant to what's going on in my life, but they use Twitter way too much. And so they want to be historically accurate, but not use any technology, but yet use all the tools that they're used to using in technology that makes things relevant to them. It's just total hypocrisy. I can't stand these articles. Now, I'm not going to deny that we have problems in the church, but that is not the way that we go about fixing them. So how do we address these articles? How do we address why people are leaving the church? We don't. We don't. We just be the church. You know, at some point along the way, we have to recognize we are not the architects of the way existence will be fabricated in the world. Therefore, we cannot act in such a way as a church that changes the fabric of the world. There is one who can act in a way that will change the fabrication of the world. And that is God. That is not us. And so we struggle and we try to find answers and we try to figure out the way things are supposed to be. And one of the things we're really good at is not having the answer of what it's supposed to be, but we can sure recognize when it's something that's not supposed to be. And so we are so critical of the things, of what people do wrong, all the while ignoring what's the problem in our own lives. You see, in following God, there is a very base level of humility that is required. Now, I recognize that while I am more humble than most people, I might have a problem with it from time to time. I recognize that. So how am I to stand up here and talk to you about this level of humility? It's a problem, isn't it? It's hypocrisy, right? So how am I, as a hypocrite, able to talk about truth at all when I am readily admitting that I myself am also a hypocrite. It's a real problem, but it's a one that we have to delve into deeper. if We're going to understand what does it really mean to follow God? And the truth is we, you and I have a need that we barely, barely understand. And yet for many of us, because we've grown up in a religious household, we're convinced we have a full clarity in this. But the truth is, we have a need that we just barely understand. We just barely understand the tips of it. And yet God understands 
fully. So as we move forward in this, the truth is you and I do have a problem with sin and it is the origin of why we pursue God. There is a reason that we have to pursue, but there is a depravity among humanity that if we don't accept it, we will miss the glory and greatness of God. Romans chapters 1 through 3, if you want a good read, read Romans chapter 1 through 3. It talks about sin. It's a lot of fun. It makes you feel good and warm and fuzzy inside all the time. But we're going to spend a lot of time in those three verses or three chapters. Well, not a lot of time. I don't have a lot of time left. But we're going to spend the rest of our time there. Romans 3, starting with verse 9, this is the NIV, says, What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all, for we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike, which in this culture meant everybody. I mean, you're either a Jew or a Gentile. There's not like a third option. You're one of those two, you know. So basically everybody, everybody alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. Now, for some of you who kind of mismatch, uh, you know, theology about justification, some of you would say, well, this is talking about before Christ, except this was written after the resurrection. So this is all relevant to Jesus giving his life on the cross. The theology of Jesus is out there. I mean, they've experienced it. This has already happened. And still, still, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is, it goes deeper, but more feel-good stuff. There is no one who understands. No one who seeks God. Like, what? Look how many people are here this morning. What do you mean no one seeks God? Verse 12, all have turned away. They have together become worthless. I mean, this is when you're high-fiving each other. Yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. All have turned away. They've become altogether worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And this is the point that we... Take this section of verses and we plug it into the library of things that may be true, but I don't understand, so I'll never try to understand. And yet it is the pinnacle of why we pursue God. There is none who are righteous. No one seeks after God. No one understands. I don't understand. You don't understand. Nobody gets it. And at the end of the day, the truth about sin is, is no matter what we know about it, we just, our understanding is so minuscule. Many times, this is where the sermon stops. And we all walk out of here going, man, you stink. <laughs> You're bad. Well, that's great. Let's come back next week, see how bad we are next week. See, the, the purpose of understanding sin is not that we stop here. But at some level, I have to agree within my heart, within my mind, within my soul, that my sinfulness is overwhelming. I I don't even understand how deep the roots are. And while we like to categorize based on what we perceive as good or bad things, the problem with that categorization is written right here that no one truly does good. And that is yet another teaching that we reject but would never say it. You mean no one does good? I saw a guy who needed money. He was homeless. I gave him, you know, 10 bucks for him to go eat. That's good, right? I didn't have to be a believer to do that. Something happened in Nepal. I can help. I can do my money to Red Cross or to Samaritan's Purse or to whoever you want to send it to. I can do that. That's good, right? I don't even have to be a believer to do that. We have people who are treating some of the worst diseases around the world. Some are believers, some are not. That's good, right? They're putting their life in harm's way. That's, that's good, right? You see, we still have this arbitrariness within us that says what is good or bad, and yet Scripture tells us we don't have a clue what's good. 
Now, the reason we reject this is because our self-esteem, our egos, they need a bit of validation for us to function. We've got to feel like we have something together or we'll just curl up in a ball and, and hide in a corner. But the truth is, God says, you can't possibly understand what is really good. Sin has so overwhelmed your life that, that you can't even see what I'm talking about. And while this does not make me feel good and this does not make you feel good, this does not deny that this is absolutely true because the one who created all things says that this is true. At some level, we have to accept this fact that our expectation of what is good, it pales in comparison to what God says is good. Now, does that mean you need to stop giving 10 bucks to Nepal or 100 or 1,000 or 10,000 or that the people need to withdraw from these countries that are struggling with these diseases, that we should no longer try to help people that have less than we do? No, that does not mean that. God never says, do not use what you have to try to help other people. But in the conversation of our need, it does not even come close to meeting that need. The truth is that I am under the power of sin right now. Some of you are you're, you're bringing your doctrinal books out. You're going, oh, but, you know, you've been saved by the grace of Jesus. You're no longer under the power of sin. Well, I may not be under the consequences of the sin long term, but ask my wife if I'm still under the power of sin. You know, we can walk around and talk about how Jesus has washed us clean, and yet if we're honest... Every morning when we look at ourselves in the mirror, we know that sin is still there. What do we do with that? Do we give up? Do we say, oh, we're just so bad. This is so horrible. What? I don't know. We just give up. No, we keep going. But I recognize I am under the power of sin. I am. We are not righteous. I do not fully understand. And I have master's degrees in understanding this stuff. See, this is where our culture of what we value has informed what we accept as true. Because someone has a degree in something, we figure they know more than we do. And yet, you can have all the degrees, and I'm really not all that smart a person. That tells you something about the degrees I have. I'm not all that smart a person, yet I have all these degrees, yet I don't understand. See, we try to find these ways that help validate, I really do get it all. Scripture says, no, you don't. I do not fully understand. Nothing in me seeks God on my own, nor do you. And the truth is, no matter what I do, I do no good. No matter what my resume says. Now, are we to be the lowest, most depressed people in the world? Absolutely not. Yet, if we're going to have an honest conversation about what does it look like to pursue God, we have to have an honest understanding of where we're starting from. We're starting from nothing. Is it enough to attend a worship service? Is it enough to give a few bucks here and there? Is it enough to talk about God occasionally? Is that what it means to pursue God? You see, God says what is acceptable to him, not me. So what does God say? How, how do we do this thing? Romans 3.23 goes farther. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They fall short of what? Okay, we're coming back to that. Fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So we bring in grace. We like grace. Grace are good sermons are said about grace. Grace feels good. Grace means I, it doesn't matter how bad I am. I'm okay. Grace is Good, good, good. We like grace. And all too often, we fully embrace some idea of grace. And we easily move beyond our own understanding of how deep our need really is. We got grace now. Yeah, but you still don't get it. But I got grace. And many in our current kind of theological uh, temperature of 
believers today have stopped with the doctrine of grace to say, God has accepted me, not out of anything I've ever done. Therefore, it doesn't really matter about anything I ever do anymore. It's all about grace. But you cannot accept that if you understand how deep our roots of sin really are. How much poison it injects into our lives and our relationships. And if you're a theological buff, the depravity by which you and I are born into. We're born depraved. Not me. I know depraved people, but not me. Yes, you and me. Fortunately, if we truly understand that grace, we begin to understand that God has given us hope beyond ourselves. You see, when we focus on sin, that there is no hope, then all we do is we heap guilt on people with nowhere to go. Yet, when we understand how deeply sinful we are, how deeply evil our intentions are, then the grace of God becomes all more magnified about how wonderful it is. But it has to begin with what are we saved from before grace ever has any true meaning. Romans 1, we're still Romans 1 through 3. Again, a great group of verses for you to go through and read. The wrath of God, starting verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So what are they doing? What are they suppressing? Okay, so right now, our our base level problem is is that you and I, it's not what you've done. It's not that you looked at something you shouldn't have. You said something to somebody else you shouldn't have. It's not that you cheated on somebody. It's not that you stole something. Those are not the base level problems. There is a base level problem that causes those things. That base level problem we read about in these, in these verses, and it says that he has, re, he has released his wrath on those who suppress the truth. So there's truth and there's a lie. So what does it look like to embrace the truth? Verse 19 says, since what what may be known about God is plain to them. In other words, the truth is evident to everybody, even if they've never heard the gospel. The truth about God is evident in the world everywhere. A sunset shows the glory of God. Birth shows the glory of God. A change of seasons from death to life shows the glory of God. The majesty of a mountain range demonstrates the glory of God. The way that God has given all that we need to exist physically in this place is the glory of God. It is, it is evident to anybody who, if they weren't struggling with sin, would see it clearly. They may, since what may be known about God is plain to them, these who are suppressing the truth, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. So that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither, what? glorified him that word keeps coming up doesn't it glory for although they knew god they neither glorified him as god nor gave thanks to him but their thinking became futile their foolish hearts were darkened you know there's a reason that places that profit off of obvious sins like low lighting you know, like in here today. <laughs> I had to throw that in. That's not true, but I had to throw that in. There's a reason that sin makes us want to pursue the darkness. We choose the darkness. Now, crazy enough, even though we dim the lights in here, one of the things that really drives me nuts is to walk in a room without a, a, enough light. Anybody else? Every Sunday morning, right? Some of you are thinking. I know you're thinking it. It's still going to be dim when you walk in, but... <laughs> But I, if a light bulb's out, I need to change it. <laughs> I, I hate for a room to be dim. And yet, spiritually, truthfully, I will always embrace the dark because I can hide from the truth there. 
That's why this language of light and dark is so prevalent in Scripture. Is because everywhere there's light, there's illumination of truth. And yet everywhere is darkness is the rejection of that truth. And so ultimately what Paul is saying here is we accept the darkness because it's comfortable. We accept it because it allows us to ignore what is true. And this is our default position. This is not something you learn. This is our default position. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. The truth is that sin causes us to prefer the dark so that we can hide from the truth of who God is. And you and I are all in the dark without God. We ignore what scripture says when it's uncomfortable, like no one does anything that's good. We follow whatever is cultural because others around us validate us. They say that's valuable. That's good, Mark. And I love to hear that. And so I'll adjust my beliefs based on scripture if other people are telling me that's good, Mark, because I want to hear that. And yet culture never pushes us towards the truth. We embrace a false darkness, false darkness instead of a bright truth. And in the process, I need you to understand, if you don't already, sin diseases our souls. It is a condition that we need to be rescued from. While Paul is talking about different idols that at the time would have been statues or little trinkets that they would bring in their homes, you and I have many more idols today, many more options today than they did. We have idols of comfort. I think one of the big ones that our children right now are struggling with is the idol of entertainment. I want to be entertained every moment of my life. To that end, we idolize musicians, athletes, games that we can play, actors. Why in the world do we let somebody who pretends for a living tell us what we should believe about deep truths in the world? I want to show you a quick video, and I know I'm running out of time, but I think this is important. This is a, I, I just want you to watch this video. You'll be a star at Ohio State. It's all about Ball Nation. God is good, Ohio is not. Tennessee needs your talents in Knoxville. Stop the nonsense. Your heart is in Rutgers, and Rutgers is where you live. No. This is my decision, nobody else's. I've worked too many early mornings, too many late nights, not to do what's best for me. No more noise, no more clutter, no more distractions. I'm ready for what the future holds. Knoxville, Tennessee, here I come. Why do I show you this? Because this is what we worship. We spend money on the things that we worship. We market what we worship. And this kid has a video made about his choice of where he's going to college. Not this year. Not this fall. Next fall. This is a 16 or 17-year-old kid that we've made this massive production about what school he chooses to go to. And some of you are going, yeah, but it's good for the Vols. Man, amen, I'm excited about the Vols having a good season. But this is why we have athletes. Did you just see the very popular Tennessee player that just got arrested? This is because sin is so overwhelming in our lives that we worship the things that are not God. This kid, I don't even know if he has his driver's license yet. And yet all over the internet is his decision about where to go to school. And Christians all over will, will revel in the 2017 season. And just give a passing thought to the glory of God. 
You're thinking, Mark, you're going way off the deep end. I know. But this is where I end up when I begin to understand that I do no good and I am depraved without Jesus. How do we pursue God? He becomes the most important thing for us. How does he become the most important thing? We understand how deeply we need him. How deeply those roots of sin run. Other things that are our idols, popularity is our idol, sex is our idol, ultimately self-worship is our idol. And yet depression among believers is skyrocketing. Why? Other than we've missed something. Romans 3.23, again, for all have sinned. You have sinned. I have sinned. My understanding of my need is so minuscule to what my need really is. We fall short of the glory of God. We don't reach the glory of God. We're not close to the glory of God. We're not close to being able to receive grace. We're so far from the mark, and yet God still gave it to us. Yet he still gave us freedom from our sin, freedom, liberation from the thing that imprisons us. Why would we continue to celebrate the things that have always imprisoned us and imprisoned those around us? We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We've already demonstrated he pursued us with an undignified love. The truth is there is hope in the midst of utter hopelessness. The truth is I am rescued from blind sinfulness and so are you. I am given a home after this life and so are you. I can know God now and forevermore. That alone, even if there's no hope for heaven, is enough. Because his glory is so overwhelming if I'll just open my eyes to see it. He has given me, he has given you the gift of redemption. Why do we pursue God? Because he's given us a gift of redemption from something. We, it is so deep and depraved that we can't fully understand. So what does it look like to pursue God with an undignified love? Let's go back to Romans one twenty one. For although they knew God, they neither what? Glorified him as God, nor did what? Gave thanks to him. God's two primary ways for us to pursue him are to glorify him and to give him thanks. I think it is, I expect them supposed to be missionaries after this. Well, you know, maybe. Yes, everyone's a missionary that knows Jesus because you're taking the good news to those that don't have it. Does that mean that you're supposed to go overseas to do it? Listen, if you hate being overseas, don't go over there because you'll be a real downer as a missionary. You got to be called for this. But you can be a missionary where you are. But being a missionary is not the ultimate way to pursue God. The ultimate way is to glorify him. It is his glory, not our own. It's not worshiping a 16, 17-year-old kid who may or may not play football at Tennessee. It's about worshiping the creator who has given us life from our deep need of sin. I wonder what will happen to, to Jared. He, he's not old enough to understand this. And yet we have put him on a pedestal. I wonder what's going to happen for him. We're not meant to be worshipped. And when we are, it always ends badly. Always ends badly. I, I, I fear for him. I don't care what he does on the football field. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. I really am about to finish. For those of you who are looking at your watches. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by work so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Some of you are going, wait a minute. You just said we can't do anything good. Now we're doing good works. I know, isn't this crazy? It's crazy following God. He says all this stuff, right? What? Yeah, exactly. He's so huge. His, what he sees is so different than what we see. We glorify God. We thank God. We devote our lives to good work. So, so what is a good work when there's no one that does good? It is good 
to give to the homeless because Jesus said so. It is good to care for those who are sick because Jesus said so. It is good to rescue those who are oppressed because Jesus said so. Those are good things. However, they have nowhere near the ability to meet our need of sin. It takes an incredible amount of discernment, incredible amount of following him. Truth is, our understanding of good is tainted by our sinfulness. Our pursuit of God must demonstrate that he is of most value to us. For those of you who are like, okay, I'm going to try harder this week. No. <laughs> I know this is crazy. This is weird. You just said we can't do this on our own, and yet we're supposed to try harder. No, you're not supposed to try harder. You're supposed to recognize the grace of God more. Anything that we do is good is by God's grace. Anything that we are that is good is God's grace. Anything that we do that is good comes from the mouth of God. It is all about him. It is not about us. And our pursuit of him has to demonstrate that. It goes so far as in Matthew 10, and I'm not going to read it, but to say, listen, if you want to love me and follow me, you, gotta, you can't deny me. I got to be the first and foremost of everything on your heart. And if you reject or deny me, then... I'm going to deny you before my father. This is intense stuff. This is real stuff. Either we recognize our need or we don't at whatever level we're capable of. So let me ask you this this week as you go through your day. What is of utmost value to you? I believe what we've read so far, what we can glean from this is what is of utmost value is to know God. It is to glorify God. It is to thank God. Everything that you have is a gift from God. Do we thank him for those things? Does Jarrett recognize his ability to be a great football player comes from God? He doesn't, I don't think. It's his hard work and the nights he's put in, as he said in the video. To thank God. To be moved to do what God considers his good work. Some of those are that we see in the life of Jesus, which means we serve God. It means we serve others. That's why service is so important here. To help the oppressed, to liberate people from the grip of sin, to liberate people from the, the grip of oppressors at times. However, you and I are not called to pick up a rifle and go kill every ISIS member. We're called to love our enemies and turn our cheek. Yeah, I'd love a freedom religious law that says that as a Christian, I don't ever have to act outside of my beliefs. But you know what? Jesus said when someone asks you to act outside of your beliefs, do it do it. They want your coat, give it to them and give them the rest of your clothes too. Turn the other cheek. Why are we having this conversation in the church? He says, you're, you're supposed to demonstrate a different way. So do it a different way. Do I want rights? Yeah, I want rights. Is the gospel going to be proliferate the world by me having rights? No, no. That's another talk for another day. To be moved to do what God considers is good. To know that something more is coming. To rescue the oppressed from a dying world. I think all of those are of valuable things. Do I do them? Are those the first things on my mind? No. But God reminds me that I need to stop what I'm doing and focus on these things. You've got to be aware that the world still loves the dark. You're going to be persecuted been paying attention in my lifetime there's been a massive shift in the way that christianity has been viewed both publicly privately and politically the talk now is is that religious beliefs need to be altered to accept the lifestyles of all people one of our presidential candidates you're going to be hearing from are going to say that people who have a religious belief that does not accept every possible lifestyle should be expunged from the american experience thank mark that's extreme just wait for it Wait for it. If it's not this election, it'll be the next. We're headed. Does that mean I pack up and move? Do I move to another country? No. I've been saved by the grace of Jesus from my sin. Whatever happens from here, I've been saved by the grace of Jesus from my sin. Sin is so huge. It's so dark. It's so bleak. And the world loves it. And I'm so thankful I've been liberated from it. Bottom line, what is a relationship that's so valuable? 
you don't ha- care how you're perceived in your pursuit of God. That's where we want to go. Now, I know I've talked a long time today, and I've talked about stuff that's not a whole lot of fun to talk about. Yet, one of the greatest things that I hope you'll take away is that in the midst of the darkness, we have been redeemed. We have grace to be rescued from our sinfulness. And the one who has done that is worthy to be glorified and to be thanked. Let's do that not just here, but everywhere we go every day. Let's glorify him. Thank him for his goodness. Would you pray with me? Father, God, I thank you for the love that you've showed us even when we are unlovable. The gift of redemption when we don't even comprehend how deep our sin is. Lord, I pray for those that are rejected because of their beliefs in the places that they work, some in their families. Pray for those around the world that are losing their lives because they have proclaimed faith in you. And I thank you for their faithfulness. They knew that what was coming after this life was so much greater than any lack of persecution here. I pray that as as that continues to move into our nation, that we would not receive it with fear. We would not receive it with disdain, but that we would all the more worship you for the grace that you saved us from our sin. So, Father, we glorify you today because it is your love that you saw our condition and you chose to save us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.